0: Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Innovators on Innovators series. Over the next hour, Tally Rosman, the LM Additive General Manager at Xerox, and Mike Picota, a contract support subject matter expert for the Department of Defence, where he specialises in additive manufacturing, discuss AM in the military. Their conversation takes place just weeks after the deployment of an LMX liquid metal 3D printing system on a US naval vessel, and 18 months after the installation of an LMX machine at the Naval Postgraduate School in California. Throughout the episode, they cover the opportunities for digital inventories in military sectors, the considerations made on implementing AM in military environments, and the need for baseline quality standards in 3D printing. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more Additive Insight, head on over to TSTmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly Additive Insight newsletter for free. And I'll leave you with Rosman and Pakota who begin by sharing their experiences of the US and Israeli armed forces.
1: So your background, we we got a brief intro last time, uh, but you you were in uh, a foreign foreign air force.
2: Ah, uh, yeah, the Israeli air force. Yeah. What so. did
1: what'd you do? What'd you do with them? Like, what was your uh, what was your main job day in day out?
2: Uh, it was uh, n- nothing exciting. Nothing exciting. I was in uh, uh, I was in the computers unit. Just you know, writing code, yelling at other people writing code. That kind
1: of stuff. <laughs> That's the similarities. The, the form of communication has got to be the same across all services, all branches, and all countries. Yelling yeah, and swearing is just <laughs> standard.
2: Yeah. Although th- that was that was the interesting thing, you know. The um the the American DOD is certainly different than the Israeli one. Uh, you know. How so? Uh I think uh, you know, you guys have a lot more uh respect for the titles and I mean that in a good way and you know, we we call you know everybody by their first names we you know openly you know express uh opinions and the interactions I had across the DoD are more uh you know people calling each other captain and by the rank captain and major and this and the
1: last name.
0: Yeah Much it's more. kind of a
1: pain and it's not it's not for everybody. Um, you know, I I did a lot of stuff. Uh my last cruise, I think I did with NATO, and we got to work with um, you know, the the German Navy, um, a lot of a lot of different navies. It was right after um it was right after they invaded uh Cri- Cri- Russia invaded Crimea. And so uh my group went out there as like response. We went to Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Germany, France, just saying, hey, we're still here, everything's keeping up foreign, uh, foreign policies. It was a lot of fun, but getting to work with all the different navies, which I've never done before, you definitely saw a shift in dynamic. I think it was the German Navy, if I remember correctly. And they actually were encouraged to have spouses on the ship. So they were there as couples, and they would have estate rooms, and they had functioning relationships. And I thought that was amazing.
2: Yeah, I think that's also one of the differences probably between the Israeli military and the U.S. one is that for us, you you go home almost every weekend, um, you know, worst case, maybe every other weekend. And in the U.S., you could be deployed and, you know, not come back home for six, nine months. <laughs>
1: yeah, I so I left home in 2008 and I think I have been back now maybe six times in all these years. We do we do this thing. There's a so if you're out at sea and you have either a steak dinner or a lobster dinner, they'll come on, you know, crab. They're like, hey guys, we got something special. They're like, ah oh, shoot, where? How long are we extending for? And then like halfway through the meal, you'll be eating, and they're like, hey, they'll come over the uh, the loudspeaker. Hey everybody, we got some unfortunate news. We're doing this mission, and we're gonna stay out for another two months. Like knew it you don't whip out the steak for nothing
2: okay well you guys have steak and lobster so you're in good shape
1: you know trust me that's why you know it's something special because that is not the case my I think I, I usually was on nights or uh usually night check and one of the dinners they individually counted out six pieces of ravioli for everybody and they're like this is it so that's that's the normal. i I hope to never have breakfast rice again where you had rice for lunch and then the leftovers became dinner and they had just enough leftover where it was breakfast yeah. rice the next morning. I hope okay. to never have breakfast rice again in my life.
2: So it's consistent and the food is horrible across armies, then.
1: Oh God, it is. I you know, we would do these on reps where we're carrying um all the food onto the ship. You'll you'll do this yeah. big line off the dock and you'll just be handing it to like convey it on and you'd have these boxes and it would say, you know, so-and-so meat not fit for human consumption. And you're just <laughs> passing it along. You're like, I'm going to eat this. This is, ah, don't, don't tell me that so, says that.
2: Well, so maybe instead of talking about, you know, plastic and metal printers on chips, we should talk about food printers. <laughs> Something I mean, That should be the market.
1: <laughs> Anything. And you know, world. it's, it's it, it's a nice segue into something. I mean, you got you guys have been doing uh, quite a bit with the Naval Postgraduate School in the lead up to putting one of the first that I'm aware of, mind you. And I've only been only, but I've been doing uh, been in this realm since uh, 2015. Um, but you guys actually put a uh, metal printer on the ship. Um, have you had any any feedback or anything from from that?
2: Yeah. Uh, so so I think as you were saying, as as far as I'm aware, I'm familiar with plastic printers on ships, but I haven't been familiar with another uh, metal printer on a ship. I'm always very cautious and say, oh, it's the first time ever because you you don't know. Uh, But to the best of my knowledge, it's the first time there's a metal printer uh, on a ship. It's been there for, I think, three, four weeks now. So it's uh, new and fresh. But so far, the feedback is good. They're printing parts. And I think kind of once a day when they have connectivity, they send us photos. Oh, here's what we... uh, uh, printed today. So obviously, I haven't been able to uh, touch and feel uh, and analyze the parts that they printed on ship and make sure they're exactly consistent with what they've been printing in land. But at least in the photos and in the kind of informal email feedback, it looks very positive. So
1: yeah, I can't go into too much. But I've actually been involved with that uh, the last the last week, um, at least in chains and things. So um, yeah, a lot of the feedback I've had is that their samples have been comparable to the printers at MPS, Naval Postgraduate School, which was what they wanted to do, to my understanding. And correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't really to make parts at sea this first time, but to t- evaluate the printer and see how it does in sea state, how do the items compare to what was expected. Um, and they did a lot of uh, couponing, um, at least that's my initial understanding. Have you have you received other feedback?
2: Yeah, so the the goal was, again, because it's novel to put a metal printer on a ship, um, was really to try and print the exact same parts in land and at sea. And then the next time the ship docks, take the parts off the ship and do a thorough analysis to compare them to the parts uh, made in land and see if there were any deviations. Um, With that said, though, I understand they were kind of very enthusiastic about the printers like, oh, well, we're done printing those tests. Can we already start, you know, cranking out some uh, parts? uh, And I saw the printed a couple ranches and things like that that are kind of usable on the ship now. So we're really waiting for it to dock, get those parts, uh, analyze, and, uh, uh, but yeah, initial feedback is is positive. So we're excited about that.
1: Nice. So like when, when I've seen other metal build prints, you know, mostly I'm, I deal with like laser powder bed and things like that in our circles. Um, what are you guys doing a lot of the the standard couponing around the, around the item to do that uh, destructive and non-destructive testing?
2: We're certainly printing a lot of uh, test parts for customers as they're exploring the technology and getting up to speed. And then there are customers that are actually already using it to make parts that have already purchase the printer are comfortable with the technology and are printing
1: actual parts with it so you know with a, a lot of the laser powder bed I, I got some coupons around here but there's always that a, a certain level of refinement you have to do afterwards you know it's it, a lot of that's kind of very granular and you, and you do it down the uh the prints coming off of the xerox system i've seen are very almost cold spray-ish where you know they they Exceed a little bit beyond the boundaries and don't have clear lines in the in the layers. What kind of post processing and refinement are there? Are they is critical to that system to bring it back down to the expected um, shape and geometry?
2: So we don't have the kind of shrinkage and warpage that you have with other technologies. So in fact, the part as it comes off from the printer is already usable, but that depends on the use case because. The surface finish so there's two things in post processing that you may want to do the first one is around the surface finish as it comes off from the printer it's uh, sand casting or better, we call it slightly better than sand casting quality so. Um, definitely you might want to um, sandblast or, or machine or, or what have you uh, for smoother surface finish, and then the second thing is a, a t6 heat treat to improve the strength. Um, so. Depending on the use case, you might be comfortable with the uh, material properties as they come off from the printer, and you are not going to T6 it, heat treat it. Um, but for most use cases, you probably would want to put it for a few hours in the oven. Um, which I'll say, you know, part of the whole uh, spiel of the liquid metal jetting technology and the mini factory in a box is that this is kind of a regular conventional oven. It's not proprietary like some of the other technologies. Um, And because the part pops right off from the bill plate after the print, instead of putting kind of the whole bill plate in an oven, which would require you to have a decent size oven, here you're just putting the part in. So you can have a relatively small conventional oven for a few hours, improving uh, the strength, and you're good to go.
1: Are you, so you've seen other uh, metal builds where they put the whole, like, right out the printer on the build plate and everything into the oven for other technologies?
2: So I think uh, there are some technologies where you, because the part is still on the build plate, you kind of put the parts with the build plate in it. Interesting. Um, but
1: I, I just personally haven't seen that. Normally, it's to... remove the part and then put it in. So I'll, I'll have to
2: look into that. Um, yeah, I mean, for us and, you know, not to, you know, I think every technology has its benefits and its strengths and weaknesses. So I don't think we're, I I don't think anybody's kind of replacing the other. I think it's all complementary technologies, depending on what you want to make. Um, and so I think our strength is really in the deployability. Uh, and the fact that it's not just about putting a a printer in a box, in a Connex box, but putting, the manufacturing, which by that, I mean the ability to get a usable part in your hands in a single Connex box. And that would include, again, putting an oven there if you need to, uh, et cetera.
1: Nice. So, you know, in comparison, if you were going back to back to what we were talking about earlier, the military application focused on here, what, what things do you think um, in, in AM as a whole, like 3D printing as a whole, uh, would be good for in that military setting, and what things that you've seen today do you personally think would be difficult to implement due to the uh, you know, military nature and fundamental aspect of working in that environment?
2: Yeah, so you know we were talking about uh, you know the U.S. military and having six nine months deployment and remote uh, locations where it's hard to get parts into. And also locations that you might struggle getting a ton of inventory or every part you may need. So, I think for those purposes of getting, I'll call them not even complex parts, just, you know, put the Navy sprinting wrenches and things like that, the ability to make them on demand at the point of consumption, I think that's huge. Um, I think the extreme other end of the spectrum might be super specialized parts for uh, aircrafts and the likes. Um, so I think for that, we're not there yet with liquid metal jetting, but there could be other technologies that are better suited to fit it for us. It's really about the, what I call the backup generator. So the ability to just get the parts that you need on demand, it might not be, um, perfect. And if you can be on the grid, quote unquote, you might prefer to be on the grid. But in the instances where you can, you're really happy that you have the liquid metal jetting options and it's, you know, I'll call it good enough or better uh, to be used, if that makes sense.
1: No, I feel you. I mean, that's definitely been my, my understanding as well in these past few years is good enough is the target area for AM right now. Because, you know, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm in the engineering community backing up. Um, you know, the the forward deployed and even daily use military operations. And there isn't a good understanding yet on, I would say, most AM technologies. Uh, there's a lot of standardization out there for like, um, you know, FFF for your big industrial systems like uh, Stratasys due to their work with the Air Force years ago. And then you've got a really good understanding of laser powder bed systems, but still it's not, it's not like you can go into SolidWorks and cat up a part like it can with traditional manufacturing and say, Hey, I'm going to make it out of a block of titanium. And then you can do a lot of work to understand how it's going to behave. Um, so there, there's, you know, a lot of mathematical equations behind yeah. that. So you understand what it will do AM because of the, the layer bonding, you just don't, you don't have that. There isn't there hasn't been enough research to create those algorithms so that you can have these computer programs say, yes, this will perform this way. Um, you know, like on the laser powder bed, we had an item that um, tons of information out there on it uh, was for the V-22 linkage assembly. I think on our side, it was like the first flight critical part ever made. If I, I know I'm getting those phrases wrong, they always get on me like, oh, flight critical means the safety is this. So I might be using that wrong, but either way, um, it outperformed expectations and even the OEM one. So like we, they put it on there, they tested it, they pulled it, they did all the destructive and non-destructive thinking it would operate in this bandwidth. And, you know, it did significantly more. And the last, the last I heard, and it's been a few months, that part is still in service on that aircraft. So, you know, with, with AM, it's just so new that getting, um, you know, we were talking about that For deployed aspect you put a printer it's your backup generator as you were saying it's ready to go but on this side um you know the engineering community needs to understand there needs to be standardization what what are how are they trained are they operating the machine appropriately are we relying on um their knowledge of the slicer or setting up that environment exactly the same way every time or is it automated is the machine so tuned in that every time you print something, it's going to behave the same way. Um, that That's what's really lacking. And that's why I'm, I'm thankful for a lot of groups. Like, I don't know if you have any familiarity with America Makes, um, yeah. all the ASTM standards, like standardization of processes, qualifications, training, and material. Uh, material is a big one, I think is critical to that Everyone always talks about the distributed network, globalization of AM, that capability, Um, similar to what you have today with, you know, paper printers and faxes. We it's the same wherever you go. They fall under the same criteria. You print a paper, you know, at Kinko's here in uh, I'm in Maryland uh, or or send it across the world. It's going to print the same way. AM definitely, definitely, definitely is not there yet, but it. It takes all of that to do so. You know, we've um on my side, we've started to set up that network the last few years. Um, so we've put a lot of effort into standardization of process, qual, specs, um, so that things will be the same. But that takes so much um, work and fundamental knowledge and processes to make that happen that it's it's quite daunting in in a military aspect, to be honest.
2: Yeah, but I think uh, the military offers a flexibility that you're not going to find in corporate. So I'll give you an example. We had one of the customers we were talking to, they were looking at it because their lead time to get certain parts that they're after is eight to nine months. And with LMX, they can literally make those parts in a day or two. Just, ah, it's a no-brainer. Then they said, ah, but our internal qualification process for part takes about six months so by the time we you know we use the back so the whole thing about a backup generator is that you need to be able to call it to action immediately if you can get the part in a day but then it takes you six months to qualify it internally you know that doesn't make a lot of sense and it doesn't save you a lot of time i do think one of the things in the military is that sometimes commanders on the ground have the flexibility and the empowerment to say, this is good enough. I need this part now. I don't have another way to make it. I'm going to use what's coming from the machine, um, which you're not going to get in a corporate environment. Uh, And then to your point, I think one of the things is that, yes, it has to be much easier. The software workflows have to be much easier. And that's for everything from uh, knowing uh, the part is printable how is it going to function? What will be the material properties and qualification of the part? Otherwise, you know, you're you're killing the the case for additive manufacturing, or you're making it exponentially more challenging.
1: I agree, and you know, to your comment about the the military and have it, Ford commanders having a little more leeway. In my experience, I think that's some sometimes. You know, I come from an aviation background. Um, I was repairing helicopters for 11 years. And in the aviation world, at least, um, everything is documented It is so rigid. And, uh, you know, if you went in there, and all I had to do was like, flip a switch on off switch, you come back inside and say, Hey, I turned this switch off in accordance with this publication at this time, and it needs to reference up and then you have quality assurance and quality assurance on top of that somebody, uh, uh, there's, it's always a minimum of a two man job. Somebody doing the action, somebody witnessing it that's qualified to witness it. And then behind the scenes, there's somebody all the way back in the um, in the QA office that will come through and do periodic inspections to make sure those processes are, are being adhered to, like the bigger ones. Like, hey, did you – you said you did in accordance with this publication. Show me where you got that publication. So it, it, we are so – documented and throw that from an aviation side um it's very very difficult to do new to do to try things to experiment um because there's a risk you know if you're if you're driving a jeep and that's your job every day is to drive a jeep and all you need is a uh, a door handle part right like and it breaks you can 3d print that door handle if it falls off there is what to say no consequence of failure if it breaks 100 of the time Worst cases, you're going to use the other door, <laughs> but on like an aircraft, you know, if you're flying and a door handle breaks, that door handle can be sucked into the engine. It can, uh, lots of bad things can happen. That could be your point of egress, your single point of egress. Um, not single, probably. I don't know. Uh, but
2: that's the thing. What I'm saying is, you know, 80-20 rule, Right. Okay, so let's not try, because I think a lot of people try with additive manufacturing from day one to aim it at the most complex, the most challenging parts. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying, no, 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 80-20 rule. Let's knock out the 80% that are not uh, a primary part of an aircraft that if it breaks, you know, the whole plane can go down. Let's focus on that 80% that we know we can do, get confidence this way qualify everything that way. And by the way, even if you don't get to that 20%, you're still fine. Because if we're all that 80%, you no longer have to carry inventory. You can really focus your inventory on the most, you know, critical things that additive manufacturing can't do. And you're clearing way in your inventory for that, because there's 80% of the parts that arguably you can do today already.
1: No, I'm, I'm totally with you. Trust me that is, you're ringing, ringing true to my personal beliefs. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of putting a very cheap desktop 3D printer everywhere and anywhere and saying, hey, make low critical stuff, make knobs, covers, buttons, stuff for ground equipment. Um, you know, do that all the time, even if you're not in military. I I wish we had more 3D printers just out in the community and people were doing things that they can. Um, From my my perspective, I've seen a lot of hardships with implementing something like a metal system or an industrial system um, in the same viewpoint and saying, hey, let's tackle low critical stuff because of the the price, the threshold for operating it, uh, for having qualified people, not having them go on rotation, be out of the command. All of the logistical stuff that not just operating a printer comes with um to make it a successful that's incredibly difficult time consuming it costs a lot of money and when you're talking in in this environment looking for like a resource sponsor who's going to fund this large process so that we can have engineers uh, of even evaluating those parts and make sure they're doing the the low critical parts um it's hard it's really difficult to advocate and say hey if you spend millions of dollars for the next couple of years supporting these printers, we're going to make super low critical things that nobody cared about anyway. But we're going to do it really well. Um, resource sponsors, they they want they want those big wins. They want to advocate and say, yes, we saved this much money. We had no return on investment. We got these aircraft or equipment up. We solved these problems. It's hard when you're focusing on low lower criticality items and saying this is this is where we start. We're going to get there. Um, but we have to do this many years of work. These, the, we need this much money to get there. It's, it's difficult. And that's definitely what, what I have seen for everybody in the AM community across all the services, um, is, is really getting those resource sponsors aligned with a big picture idea that's going to take it past even their time in office, like, Hey, we have a 10 year plan. 10 years gets us to those critical items, but yeah. we need the, the funding, the manpower, to do it. And people don't want to, people really don't want to do that. They're like, where's my quick wins? Uh, I think sometimes personally it's where are those wins that are going to take effect while I'm in this seat so that I can promote so that I can go on to bigger and better things. I don't have time for a 10 year strategy. Let me do the, anything within two years, one to two years, so that I can say I did this.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Nexa 3D. Here, Michael Curry, vice president and general manager for Nexa 3D's desktop business unit, discusses ultra-fast printing on the desktop with the zip, the benefits of open versus closed material systems, and creating sustainable 3D printers and consumables.
3: So people, once they get a technology that is four to, to, to eight times faster, you see this really big behavior shift where people don't go back. You had people that were would go to Blockbuster or other rental uh, locations and get videos. You know they might wait wait a week to get uh, a video in stock. Then along came Netflix and kind of disrupted that with on demand CDs. And then of course Netflix then got disrupted by say iTunes from Apple. Uh, then Netflix disrupted again with the idea of, of true streaming. So you don't see people who are streaming now going back and asking for uh, a cheaper overnight download from iTunes. Like that's, that's not the market anymore. And so we're seeing the same thing for 3D printers. Once you experience a much faster speed, it makes it very difficult for you to want to go back to a slower speed. Uh, so as an example, we just uh, had a client who just received the zip. And he did a side-by-side print on another very common SLA desktop printer in the market. Uh, The print that he traditionally would do took him five hours. The one he did on the zip took him 45 minutes. So that's a seven times improvement. And what that means for him is that, you know, he can now print by the hour each day. uh, Whereas before he might do one print in the morning and then kick off an overnight print. So his productivity is going to be dramatically increased. Or if you're trying to do a bit of a batch production of, of parts, you'll be able to get that many more batches done in a, in a given period of time. So I think that once people see that and f- experience that, it's going to be very difficult to go back to a, a, a slower process.
0: Can you talk about the materials that Zip uses in regards to open versus closed material systems? Mm-hmm.
3: So the Zip in itself is an open Platform for material development. We are really taking a close look at the various material providers in the marketplace and we're curating and finding what we think are like really good materials. And then we will validate those and in some cases also uh, bring them into our platform and, and resell them and we, you kind of get our stamp of approval that, hey, we think this is a really good resin, it's superior to its peers in terms of performance or some other aspect, maybe price, uh, value, and we'll make those next and branded. But then our systems are also open, so if you want to go ahead and, and find a resin that you prefer or a color that you need, we also have an open system where you can unlock all the same controls that our internal process team uses to develop resins.
0: I understand that another way the, the Zip has been built is to really consider sustainability. How does the Zip ecosystem address that?
3: A lot of people complain in the desktop space around the amount of waste that's generated. I think hmm. people in the industrial setting, maybe they, 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 they know that waste is a byproduct, but I think at the desktop when you're using a printer as an individual, it maybe come might come as a bit of a surprise. So the one thing that, the two things we're doing in terms of our resin management, uh, we are using aluminum uh, bottles uh, that they themselves can be made from recycled material or they can also be recycled themselves after use. We also have the ability to refill them. And then the second one is in our vat system. So we have an interchangeable membrane and and a solid metal vat. So when your membrane uh, exceeds its life or maybe has a puncture or something like that, you can just simply unsnap the membrane and dispose of that and snap a new membrane in. And that, that's a really big uh, improvement um, compared to some of the other systems where you're basically throwing away the entire vat. And that's a lot of uh, energy that you're throwing away in that process. Uh, so those are the two things around resin management. And then I guess lastly, the Zip itself, uh, we chose to make it an, an all metal machine. Um, many desktop class machines are made out of plastic. so we're kind of making this sturdy, robust, rigid system. and then our goal in the future is to uh, make modular enhancements to that core so you, you don't you don't end up throwing away your printer just because you want to upgrade its internal components.
0: For more information, visit nexa3d.com.
2: So so that's interesting. So you think the problem is they want the, uh, you know, amazing, shiny part that they can uh, allude to instead of actually I've I've solved the problem. It's just not a quote unquote sexy problem.
1: Oh, yeah. I I don't just think that. I know that. (laughs) (laughs) I have I have been in very many meetings with lots of people on the same topic. It is this is striking relevant to things that are happening right now. Um, To be honest, like I am seeing this day in and day out that, yeah, it's those super sexy parts, those ones like, hey, we did this in metal. Look, there was an OEM lead time of three years. They wanted millions of dollars to stand up a new production line. Um, They really they have us. We don't have the technical data to do it. Um, Those are the ones because, you know, these days, everything. In my field is related to data and metrics there's all of these things saying hey for this aircraft and this platform here's what we call the leading degraders here are my head herders these are the ones that I need answers for today because I know they're problems and the, the higher up the list they go the is the more um, the more money they're worth the more money they're gonna have to throw at the problem to solve it thinking traditionally traditional manufacturing traditional contracting even, It's, it's those big figures that get a lot of attention, but on the other side, um, you know, I I think that AM manufacturers, the OEMs for the machines themselves, don't really have an understanding of the operating needs and the operating environment of the military, and so they're starting to create uh, products, whether it's software products, whether it's um, the machines themselves, uh, the materials, and they're trying to sell it to these military uh, individuals and forward thinking people and saying, we can do this. And in reality, they can't, they're not, their machines can't or nor will never be fully cyber compliant. Their materials um, in the material handling requirements might not meet the specification uh, for deployment. Like, no, you can put that printer there, but you can't get the material through the supply chain to get there. Uh, any quicker than you could get that oem part. Um, so or even just things like um, having a requirement to touch the cloud or um, or that stuff to, to do cloud-based slicing and not localized computing all of these things are non-starters for a lot of the equipment that we're starting to see come out into the field. And you know i', I i've seen this a couple dozen times now where a very high military leader says, I want to be forward thinking, I want this printer in this location. Uh, we want to try it. We want to see. And the printer gets there. And then then all the, the logistic stuff comes in, the, the program management stuff. Hey, uh, it's here, but we ran out of material. We How do we get it? How how do we pay for it? We're a local forward deployed unit. I, I have systems for ordering equipment, and this isn't built into that. No one thought of this. Or hey, we've got, I was a printer, I'm a printer operator, I've got the machine, I'm qualified, but I haven't been through a year or more of CAD. I can't design anything or, hey, our license expired three months in, how do we get a new license? All of these things I have personally in my active duty time seen, tried to find solutions for, and um, you know that's one of the phrases I come and say is nobody wants another printer. Nobody in the services wants a new printer in a new location. I, they want the support. They want the um, the full infrastructure for the stuff they have. They just want the traditional support and to, to be able point, to use it and train. It.
2: But to your point, it's so funny. It's easier to get a million dollars to buy a new printer than it is to get a $1,000 for a kilogram of material.
1: Bingo! Oh, you know, um, you're you're hundred percent right. And that doesn't even go for AM. Um, the thing to avoid from my personal experience and time in is hazmat. Um, anything that is qualified as hazmat, it has entirely different procurement cycles, even if you're your home. Like uh when I was stationed here at Pax River, uh, we had it was one of the welding shops and they went down for a simple gas canister. They needed this inert gas. They've been using it for 20 years. And for whatever reason, that particular, the the manufacturer of the bottle they were using last month was gone. Maybe they didn't meet, you know, uh, military qualifications. Maybe they lost their certs. I don't know. And so it was like, okay, we know we need it, but there's no supplier. So now you've got to, we had to reach out all the way to the base because the base here controls the hazmat. So now you're dealing with the base hazmat uh, folks who are removed from daily operations anyway, and saying, hey, I need you to do the research, find me a subsequent uh, alternative. By the way, this isn't just my location, this is everybody in the fleet. So now we're talking about a much larger procurement cycle uh, or a larger contract, and it can be months and or years until there's a replacement in the supply system to fix that. And that's just unfortunate. And I personally think that's why we've seen the big push, at least in the uh, the Department of Defense on the US side for uh, FFF or material extrusion systems that don't require any specific or specialized hazmat. Yeah, every few months you need, you know, like a lithium grease or uh, alcohol uh, to clean it up. Those are already in the supply system. Um, but the material itself, the, the thing that you need to operate the printer, the uh, the filament, is a solid. It is not considered a hazmat. So it goes through uh, purchasing and procurement is no problem at all.
2: So it's spot on exactly what we're doing with the liquid metal jetting, right? It's completely safe. You don't have all the environmental health and safety. Um, And the spool of wire, we always say it it looks very analogous to an FDM FFF technology, because you literally have a spool of wire without any special storage requirements or anything of that sort um, for that reason. But to your point, yeah, it's, it's um, speaking of going after the sexy, shiny objects, instead of the the meat and potatoes of what a lot of units need, it is often easier to get a million dollars for a printer than a 1000 bucks for materials. And then the other thing you were saying, which I relate to, and I I heard that in an AMOG um, panel a few months ago, is that this needs to be easy enough for a 20-year-old soldier to operate. It can't be that it's aimed at the expert that has, you know, two years of a learning curve, et cetera, especially not if you're going to do it in a distributed fashion. If you're just going to have it in one centralized facility, that's a different story. You can have a set of experts that are there. But if you want to put it on ships, you want to put it in uh, remote deployments of of Army or Marines, Uh, you want to put it in various bases all over the world, you're not going to have these experts everywhere. So you have to make it much easier. Uh, And I think to make it much easier, well, that's not just the printer manufacturer. That's a few companies coming together. Uh, And for all the talk on on consortiums and, and, and putting, you know, the software and the hardware and the material and the user, together in the same room to solve the problems and are you seeing that actually happening or is it still siloed
1: oh 100 siloed it is so siloed <laughs> I didn't it hurts talk it about there. it earlier america makes i think is great um i'm a real you know i've seen really good things and gonna be honest with you i've also seen some really bad things i've seen projects go in with great intention that I personally was like waiting like okay if this comes through what comes out of it will will benefit us all and sometimes it's been it, it just hasn't worked um or you know sometimes contracting doesn't work there's there's stuff in there but as a whole I think they're heading the right direction the idea there that we're going to centralize knowledge bring folks in I love the intent of America makes what it represents and what it could be um and there's a, there's plenty of things like that where uh, you know, different programs in the, in the, like, um, what is it? SBAs, SBRs and things like STTRs. Yeah, ours, yeah. Um, once those, once those go through or while they're the, the government owns a lot of the data. So there's been a couple projects that I've seen where like, Hey, we want to work with this system and, or this, uh, software. Oh, Hey, that was started with an SBIR. Um, Years ago, and we own the government has a dev token, you can access that. That happened to me last year, in fact. Um, so I got to you know, I called up the company, uh, found out who owned the dev token, and we were able to get the data we needed because we owned it, you know, um, or, or they owned it. So, so, so the
2: burden on, on putting all of this together and making sure you have truly an end to end workflow from you know, software and the materials. It, who do you expect to lead it? Should it be you guys, i.e., military, should it be the printer OEMs? Should it be entities like America
1: Makes? That's a good. That's a good question. Um, I don't think there really is anybody set up to do it other than the OEMs and possibly a group like America Makes to drive it in working with the OEMs. Um, the uh, the military is so big, so vast so many different cogs. And, you know, we said stovepipes earlier. Um, data gets lost. Ownership, who owns that? How do I get access to it? Um, it? It's very difficult. So I think if if the OEMs started to do that better, um, it would be a lot better for all of us. I, I have an interesting comparison. And that's, I have a um, a desktop operated, not, not desktop, it's rather big, but a CNC in my garage. And Every time I, and it's open source, it's, it's wonderful. Every time I make something or carve it on my CNC, you type in, it's like three or four different basic settings. It's feeds and speeds. But at the end of each carve, it asks you, was it good? Was it bad? Uh, you know, if, you, if it's good, it'll, it says perfect. It puts all of those presets into a larger network um, back to the OEM. And if it's bad, it it asks you a few follow-on questions. What was it? Did you see chip out? Was it breaking? Um, So what you end up with is your users are creating a database for you of what's working, what settings aren't. And so then uh, it gives you recommendations. So if you go to carve something and you're using this bit, it'll say, hey, we recommend this, this, or this. I have loved that for my CNC, and that's something I would love to see fed back into the um, uh, the am community is that hey all of these settings you know even a desktop printer operating cura has hundreds of individual settings if you get into the advanced um did it work yes and if it, if it worked then hey let's push that back and eventually we will we will have this database of user entries that it, hey i selected uh, uh negative 2 infill oh hey it flags red we based on our information That We know that 100% of the time, this does not work.
2: Yeah, but you're doing that on your CNC machine at home. I guess part of the problem is, if I were to put a a 3D printer in the military, I wouldn't be able to connect it to a network that would feed me back this
1: information. But you could have localized data. Even if you don't have the benefit of the bigger network, um, you could... Go into it with an existing database, like, hey, the OEM provided this database based on all their testing. It's an Excel surprise. I don't know. I, well, we won't, yeah. we won't drill into it. But then you forward deploy where you are in that environment. And even if you're not forward deployed, you're at home. You bring it into a military installation. You work with that initial database, and then you collect your own data on top of that. Like, you know, for the last year you've been operating it, and every time you use this tip, you failed it can build upon that initial um, database for localized information. Um, and that's a, that's a nice medium strategy. It could still work. And maybe every few years or every few months, you bring in or export entire databases. Um, believe it or not, that's how my when you're working on aircraft, you have a program that documents maintenance, and that's how that system kind of works you you go out with your database and log files you operate for deployed based on what you have and then when you come back you import all of that into the mothership back into your your home base and you you pick up so there's a way to marry that between um uh those two different schools of for deployed and isolated and relying on uh larger networks i think but
2: again, you're putting the burden on, uh, on the printer OEMs. So mm-hmm. it looks like uh, our hands are going to be full.
1: Well, you know, I uh, think a lot of that burden in other industries, AM is very new, but the burden is already there. You know, when I, when I make my coffee in the morning from my coffee pot, I don't question that it's going to work 100% of the time. I don't have to think about my bean count. I don't have to think about <laughs> too much, even if I put in the wrong amount of water um, they've done that work and proven it out. And, you know, it, if, if you read the bottom of your coffee maker, there's all these standards that it met, it met this standard and this it's a electrical appliance. Um, and you get your 3d printer and, uh, maybe, you know, maybe it met a standard depending on what printer you have. Um, but they're they're just, the industry isn't, there yet. And that's why it's going to take the OEMs working with groups like America Makes ASTM to create those baseline standards for everybody so that we can have better uh, equipment in the future. And we just don't, we don't, you know, your coffee maker, I don't think got there back in the day by uh, relying on the military for their source data. I, I like to think that that was the OEM
2: yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, for as long as I've been in this industry, everybody's been talking about the, uh, click to print, the, you go, you press two buttons, it starts to print and you're done. And we all know that's not the case today. Um, I
1: think we're getting closer.
2: Yeah. That's, that's my point. I think we're getting closer. I, I would have expected by now, by, you know, the year 2022 for us to have already been there as an industry. Um, But it's taking longer than I would have imagined 10 years ago. But I think we're starting to get there to a true ease of use. Um, Certainly, I think with um, the low-end plastic printers, you're seeing that. And I think it's not long before we're going to be seeing it in production-grade equipment as well. I think some technologies are just not going to lend themselves as well to it, but others are well-positioned for it.
1: a lot of that has to do with sharing data you know um those low-end printers i think the big push was as soon as those patents expired everything became open source people started to realize like hey i can collect and share data and i can leverage what other people have done i can go look you know um my first printer that got me started in this whole thing was made of wood and zip ties and uh you know i built things i collected my own data i did test coupons i would make a tweak um, a, a tweak to a setting, and then I would post it. I would publish it. I would put it into forums and be like, "Hey, when I I was able to do this to my printer, tighten these belts down and increase the setting, and still get these kind of prints, um, that that big collection of data, understanding of what other people are doing, being able to see, and not having to reinvent the wheel constantly, I think yeah. really pushed that. And I was gonna say, like, my the desktop printer side." Um, for VAT photopolymerization, uh, some of the, the, the printer settings now are two or three things. You level the build plate, it's light on, it's light off, it's bed up and bed down. They're really becoming much more simpler to use. Um, so I think that collectively, even for the large OEMs um, with that more advanced technologies where there isn't data um, yet, sharing data giving your users the ability to um, capture data appropriately um, and feed it back Um, but having a infrastructure set up for the collection of data so that you have comparable data um, that you can do something with it later on is what's going to advance us um, as a as a group um, as a as a technology but uh, keeping data hoarding data or not collecting it it at all um, is really what's going to hold back uh, the industry from from moving as fast as we all want it to.
2: I I agree with that. And as the uh, printer OEM uh, side of this conversation, we are going to collaborate as much as needed on that and make uh, all the efforts required. Because you know, I think in the year 2022, there's no reason for us not to get to a place where it's you know seamless and easy and fast. To adopt AM into the operations.
1: No, absolutely. And although, you know, s- some people might think their printer is special, we've we've seen it these last ten years. Is that you? Somebody puts out a technology, puts out something new. They yeah. they give it a name. Um, like this is our. It'll, it'll be an acronym. This is the VLS four style of printer um well you know what it's going to be out in commercially it's going to be out for a year or two and somebody's going to make a tweak to it they're going to put a curing light in a different area they're going to do something in a different way and then they're going to release the vl Bot six so it's like okay i get it you have a product you need to target it but somebody else is going to do it or do it better soon so if you from the jump say hey i'm releasing this technology I'm sharing everything about it. We are going to be agile. We are going to make improvements as we see it. Um, I think that's going to, as an OEM would do a lot better um, than what we've seen with some of the other technologies uh, when they start new and trying to do something new.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it requires kind of this uh, uh, agility, startup-like movement around the improvements while also um, I call it having the corporate backing because I think a lot of companies in this space underestimate the level of investment that's required into the hardware um, and that actually a lot of the investment is not in R&D and having a prototype in the garage, but actually the bulk of the investment comes in the engineering mm-hmm. and hardening and productizing it, et cetera, which is why you're seeing, you know, hundreds of hardware startups. And yet when you look at how many actually have, call more than 10 machines out there, the numbers just drop. And how many startups yeah. were super promising five, six years ago and have not delivered on that promise. Um, because it's, it's, it requires such a kind of a rare combo of the startup mindset, but with corporate pockets because it's hardware.
1: You know, it's interesting here is I've seen a lot of people in additive go from being a small company, uh, like you said, a startup where they can be agile. You want to make a change to your printer? You do it. You want to make a change to how even how your company handles a certain process like a, a spec or document, something training, how, how you train people to use a printer. It's agile. Okay. We saw a problem. We fixed it. We saw a problem. We fixed it. Once an OEM makes a jump um, and becomes larger, um, a re- not a real company. That's terrible. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But a big yeah, yeah. company, and I'm sure you understand this from being at Xerox, um, yeah. but a, a, part of a larger entity um being agile becomes hard. I've I've been working with an OEM uh this last year and helping um like, hey, we have this problem, we think there needs to be this kind of solution. And seeing a corporate entity try to make change hurts <laughs> like it hurts me as a person. I'm like, wow, you operate just like the government, you operate just like uh we do here, where change is hard. And um yeah, I I, I hope that as uh, different groups and, and mainly printers start to get bigger in OEMs. They build in the processes to their company's operations that they can make changes and adapt because personally, I'm even in this new space, additive companies aren't that old.' I'm, I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that they are focused on becoming bigger on growth, on, uh, you know, uh, going back to the board and showing how much money they've made. That they they start to become stagnant. They don't make change. This is their product. They can't. And in order to make a change, it's going to take a year, two, three. Um, and by then, it's already irrelevant. Uh, people have come up with weird little solutions, or they've ditched that printer or that company altogether for another one. Yeah.
2: I think that's uh, you know that to me was the biggest thing uh, about being in this industry for so long and in Stratasys specifically. I was in corporate development, so I get to see all the different startups and I would revisit the pitch decks, you know, three years later, five years later, and it would be exactly the same. They haven't been able, even as even in the startups, they haven't been able to progress fast enough, pivot, make the required changes, let alone in the larger companies. You know, and going
1: back to what we were, you know, the, the the theme of this podcast, the military application. I think that a lot of printer manufacturers do really well. They'll come up with a product, it works, and as they try to get bigger and better, their knowledge and their understanding of how things work is from the corporate side or from industry, um, sometimes yeah. academia, and it's not a military background. So they don't understand that hey, in certain environments, uh, you can't have a USB card, a, uh, a method of data transfer that isn't hard. Yeah. Um, so they create these products that are advancing technology that are just uh, incredible out in industry. But you go to do uh, DOD applications like, nope, hey, that has a camera on it. Um, so there's risk involved there. That camera could be recording things. Out it yeah. maybe it can see outside of the build plate. Um, we've got to account for that from a cybersecurity standpoint. Um it, maybe it requires on a method of uh, data transfer over USB uh or similar and oh, can't do that. Maybe it requires connection to the internet, like we said. Um a hazmat, maybe it's uh it's a huge printer, and to access you have to be able to access it from the back, the side uh, yeah. the bottom to do maintenance and yeah, Hey, in, in field, we're gonna, we have limited space and we can access it this way. So I think for a lot of people in industry to start to understand, uh, military applications, it's very simple. More companies just need to hire veterans. <laughs> you know, if, if, that's, um,
2: that's, that's the, I think that's, that's the mic drop. Then more companies yeah. hire veterans and, uh, and I, I it's, have good it's good for everybody. And to, so it's, many
1: it's, veterans, you know, maybe somebody's job in the service, they were a, uh, I don't know, ordinance man. So every day they handle ordinance. When they go to exit the service, they have a hard time finding jobs. Uh, You know, you don't have ordinance men in every city, in every company, but this is what they do know they have been operating possibly 20, uh, 20 or more years in that environment. They just just because they were an ordnance man, that doesn't mean they weren't in charge of hazmat at some point. They might have been in charge of data. You have all of these what we call collateral duties. Other things that you've had to do in your line of work that wasn't your primary tasking. Those collaterals, I believe, mean more to this emerging technology and companies to understanding the fundamental nature of how the military works than that individual's primary job. So, order or hire somebody that was an ordnance man, a uh, a para-rigger or something like that, and put them in your, I don't know, R and D into your logistics, and yeah. pick their brain and be like, hey, what what do you think? Because they're going to be like, no, you know, I I couldn't use this in my shop. Everybody knows that it has a USB. You don't know that, and you you will be surprised the knowledge that every vet- veteran has on daily operations um that we think is common sense coming out to industry and you're like no your regular person does their specific task they wrote uh you know these manuals but they yeah. didn't know anything about hazmat they didn't know anything about cyber security cyber ops all these other things that is common sense for us it isn't so common when you get out and i think more people need to recognize that and not just look at a veteran's primary job and what they did uh, via their rating or MOS, but uh, what are their other external experiences and how can they contribute?
2: Absolutely.